Well, I asked the 9.30 praise team, they were downstairs at 8.15, I said, did anyone else have a dream that their boss called them and asked if they would speak in front of 1,200 people tomorrow? <laughs> Apparently it was just me. <laughs> um, I shared with a couple of the other services, it, it takes a lot for a pastor to not show up on Sunday morning and to call in on, and have a sick day. And so to, to tell you a little bit of framework, I'm sure Mark's told you some of this, but um, Terry texted us at about 7 o'clock and said, I'm not feeling so well. I'm going to try and be there, but can y'all be ready just in case? And so um, I, for those of you who don't know me, because I'm probably an unfamiliar face to many of you, um, my name's Amy, and I normally preach at Bonds Grove most every week. And so he's like, Amy's already ready to preach. She's good. Um, you know, someone else will have to take uh, over for Bonds Grove. Well, it ended up being a really good thing that Meredith happened to have preached the same exact week last year. And so she could take the sermon that she preached up here down to Bonds Grove and preach that at Bonds Grove. <laughs> God works in mysterious ways, people. <laughs> so I came up here so that I could come up here. But at about, once again, to tell you how much it takes for Terry to actually call out sick on a Sunday morning, he texted at 1030 and said, I'm going to the ER. Amy, you're on. <laughs> so, <laughs> So we will continue to keep him in our prayers, um, certainly. Uh, we are grateful that this happened this week and not next week. We may have been the only church canceling our Christmas Eve services if it had happened next week, because I may not be willing to do that. <laughs> but I, I am grateful. In all seriousness, I am grateful to be a part of a staff team that we can all kind of help each other out and, and make sure so that he can take care of himself, because that's important, especially with our week coming up. So. But because there has been a change, um, we um, are actually going to look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28, which is different than the scripture in your bulletin. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28. Brothers and sisters, we ask you to respect those who are working with you leading you and instructing you. Think of them highly with love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are disorderly. Comfort the discouraged. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure no one repays a wrong with a wrong, but always pursue the good for each other and everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in every situation because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't suppress the spirit. Don't brush off spirit-inspired messages, but examine everything carefully and hang on to what is good. Avoid every kind of evil. Now may the God of peace himself cause you to be completely dedicated to him. And may your spirit, soul, and body be kept intact and blameless at our Lord Jesus Christ's coming. The one who is calling you is faithful and will do this. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. By the Lord's authority, I order all of you to have this letter read aloud to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. The word of God for the people of God. 
Let us pray. Holy Spirit, Spirit, fill me up that I may be a vessel of your words today. May those words that are of you pour out on these, your people. Dear God, I know sometimes that my flesh can get in the way of others hearing your words. May those words that are of me and not of you, may they fall upon deaf ears. Amen. So some of you may have heard of this woman, Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo invented the Marie method. Now, what the, I couldn't help but get this stuck in my head because the Marie method has a lot to do with joy, and it's Joy Week this week. The Marie method is a way of decluttering your house. It is taking all the things out of your house. Basically, what you do is you take things um, kind of section by section. So let's say you're starting with your closet first. And you take everything out of your closet and you lay it on a bed or on a table. And you pick items up one by one and you look at it and you say, does this item bring me joy? And so if it brings you joy, you keep it. If it doesn't bring you joy, you give it away or you throw it away. And so I decided that I was going to do my own KonMari method. I think that I may call it the Amy Hutch method or the Hutch Amy method, if that sounds fancier. But a few months ago, I decided I was, um, I was getting winter stuff ready. And I was, I, I know a few months ago, it was probably 90 degrees a few months ago. But I was getting um, some winter stuff ready and some clothes put together and I realized that every time that I did laundry, I didn't have room to put it in my drawers anymore. And so um, I decided that I was going to do something about it and that that something was not going to be to just leave it in the dryer until I wore it again. (laughs) And so instead of doing that, I decided that what I was going to do was I was going to go as long as I could without doing laundry until I... I ran out of clothes that were appropriate to wear to work, basically. Um, And I work in a church, so, you know, we've got some strict parameters around that. Um, So, anyway, I I got to the end. I probably made it about two or three weeks, which those of you who have have kids, yes, you can be jealous. I made it two or three weeks. But um, I made it about two or three weeks, and I realized that I ran out of something. I don't remember what it was. But um, I ran out of something, and I went to my closet, and I looked around, and I was trying to find work-appropriate clothes, and I couldn't find anything but I still had a full closet. And so my, my big goal was to load it all up into bags, load it all up into boxes, and take it over to Goodwill because people need my clothes. That takes a lot of energy. <laughs> and so what did I do? But I just, I, I waited a couple days, and I was like, oh, Amy, you need to do that. Waited a couple more days. Oh, Amy, you need to do that. Waited a couple more days, and it was laundry day again. So... <laughs> I decided, um, instead, what did I do? But I put everything back into the, the drawers and into the closet the way that it was in the first place, just because it was easier. A lot of us live our lives with that same kind of clutter. We keep adding and adding and adding more things to our lives because we want to avoid what's already in the closet. Now, for some of us that schedules that are chaotic, this time of year reminds us that our schedules are entirely overbooked, right? I think that on the ninth, last Saturday night, I had four different Christmas parties. And you get to that point where you're like, I have a lot of stuff on my calendar. 
And as much as I want to do the Marie Kondo method or the Amy Hutch method to my calendar, not everything on my calendar brings me joy and that's okay. But we do have this chaos that we start adding more and more and more things to our calendars. Or maybe it's the chaos in our own relationships. We push back that broken relationship. We push back that wounding, that hurt. Because it's easier than looking straight into the closet and looking at it and making some tough decisions. Than forgiving someone. Than looking at what has actually caused the hurt. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's wounding that has happened to us that we don't really want to look at it. Because if we had to look at it, that may cause us to actually do something about it. And what I find a lot of times is that those woundings, that chaos, that clutter, starts to affect our lives with Jesus as well. It starts to affect our views of what a good Christian is, what a good church is, what it looks like to be in community. And so one of my jobs here, for those of you who don't know, um, and really I call it a job, but really this is a passion of mine, but I go out and I talk to people who have been hurt by the church. And a lot of times it just happens when I tell people that I'm a pastor. They're like, either two things happen. They walk away or they want to tell me everything that's wrong with the church. And I, honestly, I kind of love it um, because I would rather someone open up and, and talk to me about it than to not face their closet junk. And so a couple weeks ago, I finally, there, there's someone that I have a relationship with that um, I've known her for a little bit, and I knew that she used to be a youth minister and that she no longer is even a Christian. And it's one of those things where it automatically kind of piqued my attention because that doesn't happen very often. And so finally there was a wide open door one day. And I asked her, you know, is, she said something, and I won't go into it because I don't want to tell her a whole story, but she said something and I said, oh, is that what wounded you towards the church? Is that what hurt you? towards the church, and she said, well, let me tell you the whole story. This is what happened. She said, I was a good Christian for many years. I went to church all my life. I went to a Christian school for college, and I went to church, a church where they had a vision of who my husband was, and my husband and I got married because that was the good Christian thing to do because there had been a vision on our lives, and so we were supposed to be married. And so we got married like we were supposed to. We did everything right, and we had kids, and then one of our children died. And she said, I already was struggling with why I had done everything right. I did everything that I was supposed to. I had been a faithful Christian. I had been faithful to God, and yet my child died, and I was already struggling with why that was, and then someone told me why. It's because I wasn't faithful enough. All the time, we hear those stories of people who have been wounded by the church. And they're not always that dramatic. Sometimes it's that person who wasn't nice to us. The person who closed the door behind us. The person who didn't invite us to the Bible study or didn't invite us to the retreat. They're not always that dramatic. But each one of us carries some sort of hurt, and probably if I surveyed all of you, including myself, we probably all have stories of someone or someone in the church or a church that has wounded us in some way. 
and we could tell you these stories. And they create a filter by which we see God sometimes. They create this filter and this haze of our eyes as to how we see God. Churches contain people who do damage. It's just kind of the nature of, of who we are and who we're made up of because nobody is perfect. Now, I've been telling a, a secret all day long on camera, too, and in front of all of you. But I've been telling a little secret. There are six clergy on staff here. There are many, many more very professional ministerial staff who love Jesus a lot. And none of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. And I've been picking on Ed, but I'll pick on Mark since he's here. Even Mark's not perfect. <laughs> none of us are perfect. And so chances are at some point we're going to hurt someone. We're going to hurt someone's feelings. We're going to hurt someone. We're going to forget to do something or we're going to leave someone out or we're, we're going to let someone down. And let me tell you something. Before you say amen a little too loud that we aren't perfect, none of y'all are either. <laughs> and it's okay. I think what happens a lot of times is we strive so hard, we try so hard to be perfect and to be the human being that God created us to be, who God created us to be. And we start making these lists and these checklists and we wonder, well, we failed this day and we failed this day and, and, and we start adding them up in our brains and we start thinking about all the ways that we failed and all the ways that we haven't lived up to who Christ has made us to be that we forget that it isn't about being perfect. It's about shining out the light of God through us and seeing and recognizing God's grace in us. You see, the grace that we give ourselves and the grace that we give others is from knowing that nobody desires to do someone else harm. Nobody is sitting saying, I really, really want to hurt that person today. I love how um, Brene Brown puts it. He, she frames Brene Brown as someone who deals a lot with shame and um, she phrases it, she doesn't call it grace, but it is grace. She says she was working on some stuff in her own mind and her own heart, and she would get mad at people and, and over ways that they disappointed her. And finally, someone told her one day, I think it was her therapist, told her one day, look at someone in their eyes when they harm you and say they are doing the best that they can with what they have. That's what grace is. When we give ourselves grace, when we give others grace, it's about giving someone else the benefit that all of us want to do good by God. All of us want to do good by each other. And yet sometimes we make mistakes. But there are two ways to kind of react to those mistakes, right? One is to ignore them, to shove them in the closet, to, to walk away from them. And the other is to face them face to face, to admit that we are wrong. Now, I don't know about you, I am a stubborn human being. Um, my dad teased me a while back, well, when I got my dog, my dog's now 13. My, I have a very um, stubborn Jack Russell Terrier. And if you have a Jack Russell, you know that they're all stubborn. That's just how God made them. And um, so my dad looked at me after seeing her stubbornness one day, and he goes, 
you deserve that. <laughs> um, so I have a, my older sister is a literal genius, and then my best friend is, a, is pretty close to a genius. She may actually be a genius, and because she's not going to listen to this, then y'all don't need to tell her that I admitted that. Um, but she and I sometimes get in, and both of us are stubborn too, and so sometimes we'll get in these conversations and these arguments, and I'll be so sure that I'm right, and I really want to one-up her because she's really smart. And then I'll get halfway through the conversation, I'll realize that I'm wrong, and I'm not going to back down. Anyone, uh, y'all don't have to admit, God knows your heart. I know some of you do the same thing. It's hard, it's hard to be that vulnerable and to admit when you're wrong, and to, especially when you're that aggressive, and especially when you're that wrong, it's hard to admit that, and hard to come back, but that's who God calls us to be. God calls us to be vulnerable, and God calls us to admit our wrongs. God calls us to look our mistakes head on head, head, head to head and apologize for them. But for some of us, that means giving up power that we don't want to give up. It means losing control. It means that maybe people won't see us the same way anymore. Maybe that person that we don't want to give that power to, maybe that person that we just don't want them to be right. It means giving that up. But do you know that the very definition of God's love, the very definition of this word agape, which is the word that we use to describe God's love, the very definition of it is a self-giving love. It means that we give up our own desires, our own wants, our own uh, stubbornness, for the sake of someone else. For the sake of someone else and, and seeing someone else as more important than us. Seeing someone else as uh, more important than us in that moment. And this self-giving love is exactly the character of God that we explore during this Advent season. What do we explore? Who do we explore? We explore Emmanuel. God with us. God among us. God who came down to earth to walk among us. Could you imagine, can you imagine, being God? Imagine being God for just a second. I promise he won't strike you down. It's fine. Imagine being God for one second, being all-powerful, having all the power in all the world, doing whatever you want to do, and making yourself a baby. Could you imagine the vulnerability of of having to rely on someone else to feed you, to change your diaper, to hold you, to clothe you, to shelter you, to be an all-powerful God who gives up everything for us, to walk among us so that we can see him face-to-face, -face, so that we can touch him face-to-face. That's who God is. That's who that self-giving love is. And we're called to be that as well. When God walked among us, he didn't leave us alone. When God walked among us, when, when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus was resurrected, he didn't leave us alone. Instead, Christ still walks among us and still dwells within us. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we, our body is a temple. And as someone who is 
in the fitness world who, who works out a lot and, and watches a lot of things and that kind of thing, I see a lot of times where people kind of misuse is probably a bad word or a bad phrase to use for it, but, but people use that body as a temple as a reason to work out and a, as a reason to eat well, but that's not what it means entirely. It means that as you're walking around into this world, you become the means that someone else has to experience God's grace. You become the means, the, the outward sign, the physical presence of Jesus Christ, as we phrase it here at Weddington, to others. That as you walk out among and as you interact with others, that, that they will experience God's grace through you. And I know that that can feel so heavy sometimes. I know that in the midst of our mistakes, in the midst of our imperfections, that can seem so heavy and so much pressure that we can put on ourselves to be like God. But this idea isn't about exhausting ourselves with trying so hard to be like God. Instead, it's about recognizing God's grace that already is acting in our lives. It's about seeing God's grace that is already at work in our lives so that others may see God's grace. It's not about being perfect because none of us are. It's about using our imperfections to allow God to move through us so that others may see who God is. We are that means for others to experience God's grace. But for some of us, it means decluttering that closet. Some of us, it means forgiving that person, and some of us, it means looking those scars face to face. There's a, a book um, by an author, Carlos Whitaker. Carlos was um, a somewhat famous um, musician, Christian musician, uh, a few years back, and he his entire life kind of crashed around him, and so he ended up going to a, a week-long therapy, a, a week-long retreat that... Um, was directly to give intensive therapy. And as part of this intensive therapy, he was talking about how he was walking a labyrinth. And um, the, the thing was, he was walking it from the outside in, and as he was walking from outside in, God was at the center, and, and the goal was to get to just the core of who God was and, the, and is. And the way that he did that was by letting things go as he walked through and really concentrating on the things that he needed to let go. And so towards the end, the therapist told him, told the group, that they would be able to add back anything in that they needed back in their lives. That on their way back out, that they could look at those things, kind of do the, 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 does it bring you joy? Does it, is it intentional in your life? But, but they were going to be more intentional with what they put back in their lives. And so since he knew that, he decided that he was going to put away as he was walking in Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit. And he said, I, 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 it hurt so bad to do it. He said, I am a believer in the Trinity. I am a believer um, fully in Jesus Christ. But I felt like I needed to get to the core of who God the Father is. And so I did away with Jesus and I did away with the Holy Spirit. He's like, I knew that I could put him back later on. And so on his way back out, he put him back in. But he still didn't feel better. And he went away crying because he felt like he had rejected Jesus. And he felt like he had rejected who Christ is in the Trinity. And he said, but it was important to me to be able to strip everything down so that I knew 
what joy I actually had in Jesus. Some of us need to declutter our own intentions, our own um, thoughts, our own uh, ideas of what church is, of what a Christian is, so that we can get to see the heart of who God really is, of who Jesus really is. When you can get to that, when you can get to that point where you see joy in Jesus, everything that you add back in will be reflective of God's grace. We use this word church nowadays for this gathering of people. And what it ends up being is a physical space sometimes. We go to church. We, we go um, to church on Sundays. We go to church on Wednesday nights. It's a place that we go to. But that wasn't originally what this word meant. Originally the word was ecclesia. If you know Spanish, it's where iglesia comes from. But originally the word was ecclesia. And ecclesia wasn't about a place. It was a location in God. It was about a gathering of people who were located in God. Not a location on a street with a particular street address, but a location in God. When we can be an ecclesia, when we can be that place that really truly is rooted in God, it's where God's grace will shine. And Advent is that time of being able to come back to this place, to this space, to really see the simplicity of who Jesus is as Emmanuel. Paul makes it simple in the scripture. Paul makes the walk with Christ simple in the scripture. He says two things. He says, one, it can be broken down to two things. It says, one, it's one, rejoice. Rejoice in all things. Rejoice in times of trial and rejoice in times of joy. And two, it's to do no harm. To refrain from evil, to, to walk away, to, um, to really reflect on what that evil, that sin is that's in your life that you need to walk away from. To refrain from harm of others. It's pretty simple. It's two things. So I glanced over that um, my family was pained by the church several years ago and um, my sister and I were talking about it a, a little while ago, about a year ago. And she asked me, she said, why do you think that you survived, basically? She's like, why do you think that you still can go to church on a Sunday without it affecting you, and what, without it hurting you? And I, there are some logistical reasons why, but the thing is, and the thing that I told her is, my joy, my faith in Jesus Christ was separate from our experience. I was able to separate the pain that I experienced from the joy of Jesus Christ. I knew that Jesus wasn't the one causing the pain because Jesus doesn't cause pain for bad. Jesus is joy. In the purest form, Jesus is joy and Jesus is love and Jesus is agape. And I knew that. And I try and think about that when, when I talk to people who have been harmed or when I hurt others too. That we are God's grace, and we are God's reflection of God's grace. And that when harm comes, it's not from Christ. Christ is joy. Christ is grace. Christ is love. Christ is the faithful. Paul uses this phrase, pistos ho kalan. It's a Greek phrase. It means the one who calls you is faithful. 
means that we don't have to wait on being good enough. It means that we don't have to wait on being perfect. It means that when we do make a mistake, that even when we do make a mistake, even when we do hurt, and even when we are hurt, that God still is on the move. God still is faithful in all of that. So if today the thought of being that physical presence of Jesus Christ is a heady thing for you, take comfort that God is with us, God is among us, and God doesn't leave us behind to do it on our own. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so grateful for your grace and for your love and for your mercy. We ask that as we move out throughout the world that your grace shine through us, that we do become a light of you and a reflection of who you are. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.